0: basketball hero around here is treated like a god. i mean, I'll never find out what he could really do? I don't want this to be the high point of his life. I've seen him, the real sad ones. They sit around the rest of their lives talking about the glory days when they were 17 years old. You know, most people would kill to be treated like a god, just for a few moments. <clears throat> Welcome to Keeping the Nostalgia Alive, the Indiana Basketball Memory Show. I am your host, Billy Powell. Um, today with us, uh, if you go to the website markmonteith.com and because stories need to be told there it, it's an amazing website go through it, there's great interviews uh, it, it's just very cool uh, Mark has a great passion for the game of basketball um, in his bio on the website, uh, he states that you know he played a little bit of high school basketball, but he doesn't go into that very much because he says that's a story for another website and another time, so hopefully we can get a little bit out from him from that today. Um, he also has a book. it's called Reborn. Uh, The Pacers and the Return of Pro Basketball to Indianapolis. It's out. You can go to his website and go online and get it also. Um, I was in my eighth month of gestation with my mother uh, in 1967, uh, before the Pacers actually started uh, playing basketball, so I'm a I'm a little bit of a a youngster. Uh, And one of the other books uh, that you can possibly get too, which was one of the first books that I read before I started doing this show, Uh, Was is Passion Play. It's a season with uh, Purdue Boilermakers head coach Gene Uh, Cady. It's very good. And Mark has been with the Pacers for years, uh, does great stuff. And, uh, Mark, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule and uh, uh, help keep the nostalgia alive and kind of uh, uh, share what you do, how you do, why you do it, and and stuff like that.
1: Ah, My pleasure, Bill. It's always good to talk
0: Indiana basketball it is isn't it so what what was the what who first introduced you to the game of basketball do you have a first memory of what you saw or a game you were at or was it your dad that put a basketball in your hand or and and tell us a little bit about your family too brothers sisters stuff like that
1: okay well yeah just growing up in indiana in indianapolis you know it's hard to avoid basketball and uh, my dad didn't play like high school ball or anything like that but was certainly a fan and i have a brother who's 10 years older david uh whose best sport was uh high jumping he was uh set the high school record for high jump and then did the same thing at wabash college and by the way at the age of uh, 72, uh two is still jumping competitively in, in senior events but uh, he played high school basketball. So my first memories are going to the Old Pike High School gym as a, you know, five-, six-year-old kid uh, and seeing those games. And it was just, you know, I just love it. Great uh, atmosphere. And, and then I also have memories of watching the state championship games on television. The first one I recall is from 1961, one of the classics, when Kokomo defeated Manuel in overtime. You, know, you had the Venarsdale Twins playing for Manuel, and uh, Goose Ligon was with Kokomo, Ronnie Hughes, and I just remember being at my grandmother's house watching that game on the black and white television. I remember the uh, my uncles, uh, who had gone to either Shortridge or Tech, rooting against uh, Manuel because they were the city rival, and my aunts, uh, who had gone to city high schools rooting for Manuel because they were the local team. You know, I kind of told you about uh, how people think. Um, and I just remember Manuel wearing white uniforms and Kokomo wearing dark uniforms, had no idea what color. And that's always stuck with me. So the state championship game was always a big deal. And uh, it just kind of gets in your blood. My dad was a season ticket holder for Butler as well. He was He's a Butler grad. And so we went to a lot of Butler home games and saw them knock off some of the nation's more powerful teams. They beat Michigan with Cassie Russell. They almost beat Ohio State with Gary Brads and those guys. And they, uh, you know, they played everybody. I saw them play. I saw them beat Purdue when Rick Mount was a sophomore. So uh, just going to a lot of games and seeing games on television and having parents who appreciated it and were fans, that kind of thing. Uh, Having an older brother who played it, uh, all that stuff kind of added up and uh, got basketball into my blood. And we did have a hoop in the driveway. Dad hung a hoop over uh, one, one of the garages with a wooden backboard, so there was always a place to go and shoot.
0: And you know, uh, a lot of people outside the state of Indiana won't understand this, but you played basketball when it snowed, rained, was hotter than hell, all kinds, any any season. You played basketball outside on that hoop, didn't you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have memories of uh, playing in the winter and going inside and turning on cold water to warm up my hands. <laughs> you know, because your hands were that cold, they were frozen. If you turned on hot water, it might have been dangerous. But you know, you would use cold water to warm up your hands and. You know, it didn't matter what you were wearing. You were just out there playing. You know, you got exercise by shoveling the driveway, get the snow off the driveway, and go shoot. So it was great to have access to that all the time.
0: You know, when I was in sixth grade, I had the opportunity to go and watch uh, Broaderpool play New Albany in the state finals in 1980. And I remember just that game just so vividly and the, the memories of it and how, you know, I wanted basketball to be a part of my life. Was that the same way when you were watching Kokomo and manual play?
1: yeah no question you know no question if you'd asked me when i was six you know eight years old whatever what i wanted to do i wanted to be a basketball player and and playing high school basketball would have been the biggest thing you know i, I probably realized before too long that i wasn't going to be a pro but certainly to play high school basketball was the greatest desire i had you know because it was uh such a big part of my life you know in indiana before the pacers High school basketball was it. I mean, college basketball certainly was big, but Indiana high school basketball was the biggest thing because of that state tournament. You know, uh, when it was played at Butler up until 1971, it would always draw a sellout crowd, and it was always on television. I mean, sectional and regional championships were on television, and uh, it was just a huge part of everybody's life. It brought people together. It added a lot of color and excitement to people's lives. Uh, a lot of great stories came out of that it gave so many kids something to i guess you could say shoot for on a literal basis uh to do you know you wanted to be a high school athlete and and to be a high school athlete within your community was a big deal you know i played on team a team at pike that as a junior that won the first sectional and regional championship in school history we got out of school. You know, we got out of school on Monday for winning a sectional. <laughs> it was, you know, we all showed up and had a pep session and went home. The following week, we did the same thing. I guess they figured there was too much excitement going on that nobody would have gotten anything done in class anyway. So that's how big of a deal it was just to win a sectional back at that time. So it was in it was in everybody's blood.
0: I mean, winning a sectional for, with single class basketball was almost just as good as winning the state championship.
1: Oh, yeah, for certain communities, no question. You know, you'd have a, a smaller school knock off a bigger school or whatever, and, yeah, to win a sectional was a big, big deal. And it's amazing to me, you know, I mean, Pike High School existed back, oh, I think into the 1800s, it was called New Augusta High School up until World War II period. But it's amazing that that school had never managed to win a sectional. You'd think you'd get lucky one year. But uh, my junior year, which was the 71-72 season, we got lucky then, too, really. We had a bye, and we only had to win two games to win the sectional up in Lebanon. And we won that, and then we went back and won the regional, and it was just an amazing feeling around the school. And I wasn't, you know, the star or even a really important member of that team, but it was still a big thrill for me and for the entire student body.
0: You know, you you brought up that uh, uh, the game against Butler beating Cassie Russell in Michigan. Uh, someone who's very really looked over a lot in high school basketball and at, at Butler is, uh, I think Lon Showley was on that team, wasn't he?
1: I think that's right. Yeah, there. I you know there was a guy Ron Salatich, played at Butler. I could remember a lot of games. A uh, guy Clarence Harper uh, was a guy on that team. I could remember. I mean, Butler had a team in what was it, 61 or 62 that went to the NCAA tournament back when only like 16 teams got into the tournament and they beat Bowling Green, a team that included Nate Thurman, the future Hall of Famer. Then they lost to Kentucky, I think, in the Final Eight. And, uh, you know, those guys, you had Jeff Blue and Tom Bowman and Larry Shade and Jerry Williams. I remember a lot of those names. And, you know, you remember that, don't you? You know, the, the names, even if they were just good high school or college players, you know, those names stuck with you when you're a little kid because you thought those guys were gods, even though they might have been just their kind of run of the mill player on the national scale uh, you know if those were the guys you watched, those were the guys you wanted to be like.
0: You, you know, it's interesting. I read in your bio, too, about, you know, uh, you, you love to read the Indianapolis Star, the Indianapolis News, and the Times for a little while before it went defunct. You know, I, I did the same thing when I was a kid from that 80, probably 1980 to 1986 period where I, I couldn't wait to get that Indianapolis News or Indianapolis Star and, and read about high school basketball.
1: Yeah, you know, I uh, I guess for me, words, reading, writing came a lot more naturally than math and science. You know, everybody has a different kind of brain, and for me, those things were more interesting and and came more easily. So, yes, you know, I always look forward to getting the newspaper and reading that and just kind of inhaling it. And, you know, obviously, you learn a lot that way, and this is, of course, before ESPN and uh, social media, so that was really the way to get information, and uh, somebody like uh, a sports columnist like Bob Collins, you know, was a major sports figure and powerful, had power within the state, much more so than uh, a columnist would today. So, um, you know, those were, you know, I would – I'm not one of these guys who says, oh, the newspapers were so much better back then. I think, you know, the talent at the newspapers today is better than ever, just like the players are better than ever, but certainly the newspapers were bigger then (laughs) and had more information in them and were uh, more important to the general public and were read by more people. Um, And, you know, that was, yeah, that was a big part of my life, you know, just to read the paper every day.
0: You know, it's interesting, you chat about Hinkle Fieldhouse, and uh, we were back home about five years ago, and, you know, the nice thing about Hinkle, they, the doors are open, you can go in, I'll tell you, you could put a blindfold on me, and you could walk me into Hinkle, and I could, you, you and you could just, you could take me for a trip, and then bring me in, you'll say, where are you at? And the smell itself just brings, just oozes memories from that uh, yeah. basketball, you know, arena.
1: Yeah, no question. My brother lives in that butler Tarkington area over on Capitol. And uh, many times uh, when I'm over there with my wife or we just sometimes we'll go to Butler just to walk the campus uh, in good weather. And you got to go inside Hinkle. It's just automatic. You go inside Hinkle Fieldhouse just to look around. You know, I could take you exactly to where my dad's season tickets were in the balcony above one of the baskets there. I guess it would be the south end. And um, it's just a classic place. You know, I could remember as a kid, if the game got boring, if it was a blowout, you could run up and down the ramps. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was just a cool place to think that they built that in 1928, a place that massive. It's got to be the nation's most historic basketball facility. I know it's not the oldest, the one Minnesota plays in, opened at the beginning of that season. Uh, Hinkle didn't open uh, until, like, January, February of that 27-28 season. Uh, Butler-Notre Dame game was the first one played there. There's a handful that are still in use that are older, but think of all the great players that played in uh, what's now called Hinkle Fieldhouse, starting with Johnny Wood in 1928 in the state championship game there. And then all the way through, you know, you had professional teams playing there in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, Butler played a national schedule. he had the best college players there. You had the first ABA, ABA All-Star game play there. I mean, Oscar Robertson played there. Larry Bird played there. We could go on forever. Uh, I can't imagine, with the exception of perhaps a place like Madison Square Garden, although the current one, you know, certainly isn't old enough to have included guys like Johnny Wooden. I mean, I would say Butler has had more great players come through there than any arena in the country.
0: Do you feel like they've done a really good job of kind of modernizing the place without really modernizing the place?
1: Yeah, I do. You know, you have to do some things to make it more comfortable for people. Uh, As you know, it used to be all bleacher seating, wooden bleachers. Uh, And so now they have chair backs. And, you know, while some people might be nostalgic about how it used to be, uh, I think you have to do that, you know, certainly – what you have to charge now for a college basketball game. You've got to provide some comforts. Uh, the alums, you know, are, are willing and able to pay it. So I think they've done a good job. You can't mess with the outside. Uh, you know, keep the windows. You've got to keep those windows uh, free uh, for so the sunlight can come in. Uh, so, yeah, I do. You know, it, it's a good uh, compromise, so to speak. Uh, of the history of it the nostalgia and the modern conveniences
0: so yeah i do think they've done a good job and mark what was your first uh, uh uh organized basketball experience as a player yes
1: or oh well i played uh junior high school you know i mean when i was coming up now kids you know are playing when oh, yeah, they're six AAU. seven years old you know yeah and i would have loved that personally but you know I see my first organized was fifth grade intramurals you know elementary school intramural team in fifth grade was the first time I had a chance to put on a uniform and be on a team and you know and have competition and then same thing in sixth grade was intramurals and then starting in seventh grade we were able to play uh, other teams you know I could remember the first game I played in a real game against another school was against deaf school uh in seventh grade i could even remember uh, you know i hit the first shot i took a little turnaround and shot in the lane you know and uh those things to stick with you so uh, up through junior high and then high school you know there's a lot of things that will stick in your mind
0: when you got to pike was ed siegel already there or did he come along about your sophomore year
1: he came along I think it was my sophomore year yeah that sounds right uh, might have been freshman year but I think it was sophomore year he became the coach replaced Paul Curtis who went to Crawfordville and he was the varsity coach I played for Ron Iwema as a sophomore on the JV team and he was a Butler player and I'd watched him play at Butler so I thought that was pretty cool and to tell you how your perspectives change I mean Ron Iwema was a good player at Butler but not a star player not an all-conference player or whatever but You know we might play in a some kind of little three-on-three game that he would be part of and i thought man this guy is so good he could be playing for the pacers he just seemed so good uh when i was a sophomore you know so much better than what i was that i thought, like ah he got to be playing for the pacers how could they be any better than he is but you know you it tells you what your limited perspective is at a young age but uh, he was a fun coach to play for and uh uh, you know that's kind of I probably made more progress that season than in any other in my career such as it was
0: <laughs> you know it, it's fun I, I love doing this stuff just you know finding pictures and stuff like that were you did you choose number 34 or was that just what was left
1: Oh, you've got my senior <laughs> picture, huh? Uh, I wore 30 as a junior and then I switched to 34 as a senior, I guess, for two reasons. One was Mel Daniels. I like Mel Daniels for, you know, I'd never met him or whatever. I think I had gotten his autograph once, but, um, you know, I, I I like Mel Daniels, even though I wasn't a center by any means. And then uh, the guy who had won, worn 34 my junior year was Dave Wood, and he was a good player. In fact, he was co-Marion County athlete of the year, and he'd been student body president. You know, Dave's still a friend. He's now a high school coach in Lafayette. So I think for those two reasons, I thought, you know, it might be good luck to switch to 34 because as a junior, I hardly played at all. As a junior, there were seven seniors on the team who all were good. I was like the ninth man, ninth man on that team and hardly played at all, so I wanted to switch something up and and uh, uh, you know start over again, so to speak.
0: You know, Coach Ed Siegel being in the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame, what what was it like to play for him, and what 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 was he like as a, a coach and as a teacher?
1: Well, he was hard nosed. You know, we uh, we practiced hard, and you know, as a uh, journalist, I had a lot of opportunities to watch. Bob Knight's practices at IU and Gene Cady's practices at Purdue and they didn't run any more than we did you know there were a lot of baselines or death valleys or whatever you want to call them you know a lot of punishment things or you know getting lining up at the end of the floor and you know free throw line back mid-court line back other free throw line back other in line and back and we would do half a dozen of those and you know guys would throw up or Yeah, and everybody had to make it under a certain cutoff time or everybody had to do it again. You know, it was strict stuff. So, you know, there's no question that we really practiced hard and and the the basic fundamentals were emphasized. I mean, you know, you you had to defend and, uh, you know, it's about not taking bad shots and that kind of thing. We didn't have a sophisticated offense by today's standards by any means. I don't know that many teams did back then, but it was certainly physically demanding, no doubt about that.
0: And when the Pacers organization came to town and they started playing professional basketball in Indianapolis, what was your what was your take on it? Did you fall in love immediately?
1: Yeah, I was uh excited, you know, and the whole city was. I mean, there had been a kind of vacancy there. I mean, Butler was a pretty big deal, and the high school tournament was a big deal, but I think the city was growing and becoming ready for something big time, so to speak, You know, to have pro basketball. The Olympians had folded in 1953, so there was a 14-year gap with no pro basketball, and this is something I didn't remember growing up, but I learned in my research for my book that there was an NBA game at the Coliseum just about every year. You know, the The Cincinnati Royals would come over with Oscar Robertson once or twice a year, I mean, Slick Leonard, uh, as a member of the Chicago Zephyrs, came in for a game one time. Um, uh, the Lakers, with Jerry West and Elgin Baylor, played a game at the Coliseum one year, like in 65 or six. So I don't know how those all escaped my attention, but I wasn't even aware of it growing up. I must have read about them in the paper, but I'm kind of mad at my dad for not taking me to those games <laughs> looking back. But um, I, we were excited for the Pacers because it seemed like a big-time thing, and the Pacers we're bringing in a lot of the indiana high school players that we were familiar with like jimmy rail and ron Bonham, uh you know bobby joe edmonds from the attics team uh guys like that as well as a lot of big 10 players with whom we were familiar guys from you know michigan michigan state and northwestern and illinois that kind of thing so um yeah no question there's a huge amount of excitement for the pacers and i have a specific memory of talking to my brother on the day of the game saying we should go to that Pacer game tonight you know and as it turned out we wouldn't have been able to get in because they gave away so many tickets and sold so many tickets they turned away a couple thousand fans but you know I listened to it on the radio and man do I wish I'd been uh had the foresight to record it <laughs> a recording of that game would be worth something and I would have loved to have heard it But, uh, you know, I asked Jerry Baker, the original radio play-by-play voice of the Pacers, if he had a recording of it once, he said, no, you know, we we were just trying to survive that season. We didn't think we'd be around 50 years later. So uh, nobody thought to record that very first Pacers game. I wish I had done so.
0: You know it's interesting you say your uh, memories that stand out mine where I had a transistor radio and if you just turned it up just a just a just a little bit you could put it underneath your pillow and I got to listen to Bob Lamey call some of the Indiana Pacer games.
1: Yeah, yeah, I did some of that too and my brother Rick who's 3 years older he actually did a little more of that. He re- he did record some uh Pacer games off the radio uh, and they're pretty cool to listen to now. It's just like three or four minutes here and there. Uh, but they're fun to listen to. And uh, speaking, uh, or you mentioned Bob Lamey, the guy before Lamey was Joe McConnell, and he did have the foresight. He, uh, His first year as the broadcast voice was 72-73, which is when the Pacers won their third ABA title, and they won the championship in Game 7 in Louisville against the Kentucky Colonels, and he had somebody back at the station record that, commercials and everything, and he later uh gave me a real to real copy of that and I had it transferred to uh CDs and uh, it actually got played on the radio once. Uh so that's really great when people realize the historical moment that they're in and uh you know record it or make sure you know they get all the details of it.
0: What was the Mark what was your first when did you know that you could write or when did you become good at writing?
1: Oh uh, boy you never feel like you become good you can always get better but I I don't know I guess in junior high school I mean I worked on the student paper in high school um but before that you know I guess I was told I could write and I would you know sit down at a typewriter at home sometimes and kind of mess around with it and write things uh but certainly in high school I think if you had talked to me when I was 12 years old I think I would have told you then that I wanted to be a sports writer. Uh, I know one person in my senior yearbook and from high school wrote, I'll read your column in The Star someday, that kind of thing. I knew then that's what I wanted to do. It took me a lot longer to get there than I had wanted, but I did eventually work with The Star. Um, but I, the story I like to tell is that when I was around 12 years old, uh, uh, there was a guy named Corky Lamb who wrote for the news, the afternoon paper. And he was a talented writer and he went to the same church that we went to growing up and one day my mother told him you know our son Mark wants to be a sports writer and Corky said well how old is he and she said 12 or whatever I was at the time about that age and Corky Lamb said well maybe it's too maybe it's not too late to change his mind then (laughs) because Corky by that point was a little bit embittered and (laughs) frustrated with his career I learned later that he kind of had gotten passed over for, uh, to become the sports editor and, you know, wasn't pleased with the way his job was going at the time, uh, which I have seen happen many times in the newspaper business. And uh, so I understand that now. But that was my initial feedback from him, like, well, maybe it's not too late to change his mind. But I still followed through on that and worked on the student paper in high school and then did the same thing in college and uh, that's always what I wanted to do because I liked sports and writing was what I could do I wasn't going to be a major college or professional athlete and uh, it just kind of seemed logical to me
0: with with that being said and you knowing that you're not going to be a major college athlete what uh, what was your path like in choosing a college Well, I thought coming out of high school, you know, I knew I wanted to be a journalism
1: major, and for some reason, I wasn't aware of Indiana's journalism program. Part of it uh, was, number one, my dad really didn't like IU for whatever reason. My my mom went to IU. My dad went to Butler, but disliked IU a lot for some reason. Thought it was an elitist place or maybe liberal or whatever. Uh, So I was never kind of encouraged to go to IU. And then, when I was in high school, we used to go to Ball State for these journalism weekends or journalism camps, that kind of thing. And a journalism teacher I had as a junior and senior had gone to Ball State. She was drop dead beautiful and really nice, <laughs> and uh, so that gave me a that gave me a positive impression <laughs> of Ball State. And I thought Ball State was my only choice to go if I was going to go in state to college. Uh, and, you know, not make my parents pay out-of-state tuition. I was going to have to go to Ball State. But when I got there, uh, it just didn't feel right to me. You know, within the first month, I think, uh, I had decided this this is not the right place for me. It wasn't real big and it wasn't real small. It kind of seemed stuck in the middle there. And I was starting to learn about IU's journalism program. So I knew pretty early on that I was going to transfer to IU Uh, for the rest of my college career and it took some convincing uh, of my dad to do it but you know he wasn't going to deny me my career and so it all worked out I transferred to IU my sophomore year and then finished up there
0: you know uh, the only reason I could not wrap my mind around going to Ball State I went to Indiana State University and the only reason I couldn't wrap my mind around Ball State is they had tri-semesters and I just that just gave me a headache
1: (laughs) but you know what that worked out to my advantage because I took, you know, more classes, most of my credits transferred to IU, so a class I had taken for a shorter time period, you know, counted as a whole semester's class at IU, so I kind of came out ahead, if I remember (laughs) right, from my freshman year, you know, I was a little bit ahead of the game when I got to IU as a sophomore.
0: And you get to IU as a sophomore, uh, do you go directly to the daily student?
1: Yeah, you know, that was kind of scary. You get down there, you're on the big campus, and you naturally assume that the people on the student paper are just, you know, smarter than you and better than you. It's kind of intimidating, and nobody comes to get you. You know, nobody comes and says, hey, do you want to work on the student paper? You know, you're taking journalism classes, but you have to uh, walk in that door of the newsroom one day and find somebody and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to work here. And I did that finally. I didn't do it until... Uh, I guess the second semester of my sophomore year I was down there a semester and then the second semester I finally walked in the daily student and um, told somebody and I was directed to the sports editor talked to him and you wind up writing little items on club sports you know not even varsity teams that kind of thing and uh, I guess the thing that I did that really advanced my opportunity there was I went to summer school after my sophomore year and uh, really got ingrained that way because there was only like a few people in the sports staff over the summer and you're putting out, gosh, that was a weekly, maybe twice a week or something like that in the summer. That was a great opportunity for me. And then I wound up being sports editor uh, the second semester of my junior year. To And that was when they went undefeated and won the championship in 1976. And I didn't cover the team. I was strictly the guy in the office putting out the paper every day and then cover the team my senior year uh in 77 that tells you that covering the basketball team was actually a bigger deal than being sports editor at that time and my timing was both good and bad as far as covering the IU basketball team it was bad in that it was the only season that a Bob Knight team down there did not go to a postseason tournament you know we're talking the year after they go they go undefeated and win the championship in 76 you got a freshman class of Mike Woodson, Butch Carter, Glenn Grunwald, guys like that. Um, so maybe that was bad, but it was good because about five guys quit the team before, during, and after that season. It was a great journalistic experience. Um, I got kicked out of practice by Bob Knight one day for something somebody else had written in the student paper. Um, and, you know, so it was a challenging experience, uh, but a really good one just from a journalistic standpoint, regardless of the fact the team wasn't that good.
0: You know, you can uh, at markmonteith.com. You can and in his bio section. You can uh, read that story about the uh, the Bob Knight experience, which is a I got a good chuckle out of it reading it. So that was uh, that was trial by fire, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was. You know, that's not, they don't That's what they don't teach you in class. You know, what do you do when you get out of practice by the coach? You know, so you've got to get the real world experience. I tell kids that all the time. You know, your classes are important enough, but what you really need to devote yourself to the most is the practical experience. you got to get out there and cover games and do stories and make mistakes and, you know, learn in the real world. That's the only way to really get better.
0: So while running the paper, while being the sports editor, what what is going through your mind on what you want to do with your life? Oh, well, I
1: wanted to work for a major city newspaper, ideally in Indianapolis. You know, that would have been the best thing by far. Uh, It's where I grew up, and, you know, all my knowledge was for the Indiana sports teams. You know, I really didn't want to go out to New York or whatever and and, uh, start covering games. I didn't have any great desire to work for the New York Times or LA Times or whatever. I wanted it to be in Indianapolis, but I didn't get that opportunity, you know, and you learn some of the practicalities of it that, you know, I didn't have the right connections. There were, you know, people on the staff in college, you know, who really – Uh, didn't do as much as I did there but they had the right connections to get a job at the Star. I had a start out in Marion, Indiana at the Chronicle Tribune and you know 22,000 circulation covering the county high schools I didn't even cover Marion High School I covered Oak Hill and Madison Grant and you know those kind of places but that's okay you know again you're obviously not going to be all that good coming out of college so you're making your mistakes before a smaller (laughs) group of people You're not going to get swallowed up into, you know, by a bigger staff. And so I got opportunities there. I was only there for a year and a half, and then I went to Fort Wayne and started getting better opportunities to cover college. College just covered a lot of IU and Purdue games, football and basketball. Made three hour drives to Bloomington and two and a half hour drives to West Lafayette to cover games. Uh, I was able to work out of Indianapolis starting uh, in 1980. Four, when the Colts moved to Indianapolis they kind of stuck me in Indianapolis as a central location and that was great because I got to do not only IU produced Purdue stuff but Colts and Pacer stuff you know whatever the biggest thing was at the moment and I was two hours away from the office so that turned out to be a great opportunity and I was with that paper for uh, 11 years
0: what was you know in, in all this working up to uh, uh, coming back to Indianapolis? Did you and being a writer? Did you have a and even in, through your whole career? What are some of your moments where you're like you know you're talking to someone uh, and you're like wow I can't believe that I'm talking to this person and I'm a writer?
1: Yeah, well, probably the first person like that was Bob Knight. I mean, I'm a um, you know underclassman at IU. Uh, and he, you know, again, he'd won the, the whole thing in 76 uh, and was, even before that, you know, obviously a uh, hugely popular and famous coach. And I was naive. I remember when I was in the classroom, before I was covering the basketball team, I don't know why, but I got the idea in my head. I want to do a story on the assistant coaches to Bob Knight. You know, who are these people and, and you know, who are the ones who helped Bob Knight? And I just walked in, I got permission to do it, I guess. And I just walked into assembly hall one day, uh, not knowing you're not really supposed to do that. And I walk in and he's in there with his assistants, and I just walk up and, introduced myself and tell, told him what I wanted to do and he was in a good mood that day and he was very nice <laughs> to me and, and I talked to his assistants so but that was kind of an, an intimidating experience certainly and it worked out okay but uh that was one um I guess certain pro athletes that you wind up talking to you know I was going to pacer games in the 80s uh, they weren't very good but I would go to games and do feature stories and stuff I remember having a fairly lengthy one-on-one conversation with Julius Irving. His last season, he was kind of on a farewell tour. And when they played at Market Square Arena, uh, you know, I wanted to do something with him and I hang out after the game, after everybody had left. And he gave me probably fifteen minutes just one on one. He had all these people waiting for him outside the locker room. I'm just a guy with the Fort Wayne Journal Gazette. And he couldn't have been nicer to me. And uh, I can't remember the story I wrote, (laughs) but uh, that was certainly a memorable experience. And he's always been a class guy. And that's an example of it. I remember chasing after George McGinnis. You know, I, of course, had seen George play on television in high school, winning that 69 state championship and scoring, you know, was it 50 points, 53 points in that Indiana Kentucky all star game down in Louisville. So, and I, of course, watched him play for the Pacers. So, when I was a sports editor of The Daily Student, I started the thing of doing feature stories on professional athlete, athletes who had gone to IU. And uh, I wanted to do McGinnis, so I went up to Chicago with a friend. Uh, George is playing for Philadelphia at this point, and he's as big a name as there is in the NBA. You know, ABA MVPs, and an NBA all-star. He's, you know, as good a player as there is in the NBA. So we're talking to 70... Five seventy-six season I guess uh, yeah this would have been George's first year in Philly and uh, or it might have been the following year one of those two years and a, a friend of mine went up with me and he talked to John Laskowski he was playing for the Bulls I went up to talk to McGinnis we found out the hotel they were staying at and hung out there in the lobby I was hoping to talk to George before the game before he left for the game I you know, found him and he said no 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 I, I got to go now but talk to me over at the arena before the game so we went to old Chicago Stadium. I went into the locker room, and he said, "I'm too busy right now. Just talk to me after the game." And so I went uh, <laughs> in their locker room after the game, and of course, he was had doing all kinds of interviews. And uh, and by the time everybody was done doing their daily work, he said, oh, "We got to go now. Catch me back at the hotel." You know, this is before charter flights, so teams would stay in the city the night of a road game so he went back to the hotel so I went back to the hotel and found George in the lounge kind of holding court had a bunch of guys sitting around him Roger Brown the retired pacer at that point had driven up from Indianapolis just to say hello he's kind of sitting off to the side I almost felt sorry for him because he was kind of forgotten here's a recently retired great player who's just kind of sitting there no one paying attention to him and I just kind of hang around and finally you know approached George and uh and he gave me like 10 minutes you know with all these people around him you know I interviewed him for about 10 minutes and <clears throat> that's George you know I've gotten to know him very well since then written on him many times in fact George let me go <clears throat> excuse me George let me help him with his hall of fame induction speech you know from last year and um, But I tell him that story, you know, you didn't have to be nice to me back then. I was just a college kid and chasing you, chasing around uh, to get some of your time and do a story. He was very polite to me. And George, as anyone knows, is a very nice person by his nature. And, uh, you know, I could tell a story to prove it.
0: So, at any point in this time before you uh, start in Indianapolis, do you uh, do you think about writing books, or you think about uh, continuing with what you do for the papers?
1: Yeah, I got the idea to do Passion Play uh, in the 87-88 season, partly, you know, I got to give credit to John Feinstein for Season on the Brink, you know, that book came out in, what was it, 85-86? Right and was a, I mean, it was a national bestseller. It was a huge thing. Uh, I don't consider it like the best written book I've ever read, but to get that kind of access was huge, and he did a great reporting job and did a fair job. Uh, And what a lot of people may not know is he left out some stuff (laughs) that, you know, really would have gotten people's attention. Uh, You know, but he thought it wouldn't translate, that well to print so it's not like he went in there trying to get Bob Knight he wrote an objective account of a season with Bob Knight and uh, and that had done so well and I had covered Purdue uh, quite a bit up to that point and gotten to know Gene Katie and Purdue had a chance to be really good in that 87-88 season they had Troy Lewis, Todd Mitchell and Everett Stevens coming back as seniors and were regarded as a team that could win a national championship So I thought, you know, this will be a great challenge for me. Uh, It could turn out great if they, you know, win a championship. Uh, I was so lucky that the editor of the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette at that time, Craig Klugman, gave me a leave of absence. He arranged that I would be paid half of my weekly salary to write one column a week. I wrote a column for the Sunday paper each week and was paid half of my salary, which allowed me to survive. You know, I I took an apartment in uh, West Lafayette, And Gene Katie gave me total access. I went to every coach's meeting. I was in the locker room. I was on the bench for the games, just every practice, everything. And um, so that turned out to be a great experience. I learned a lot about basketball, for one thing. You know, the games were just the tip of the iceberg. I saw the practices. I saw the meetings. I was in the locker room. Uh, And the book did well. You know, I mean, they wound up having a really good season. They won the Big Ten by two games in the regular season. Wound up losing in the third round to Kansas State in what was kind of a fluky game. I mean, Purdue did not play that badly. But you had Mitch Richmond banking in three-pointers from the top of the key is one of those games. And K-State hit eight out of ten three-pointers in that game. So it was a heartbreaking finish, but it's still a great experience for me, and the Purdue fans were eager for a book on their program in the wake of a season on the brink. So it turned out well, uh, and it was a great learning experience for me.
0: How tiring was it? How much work did you put in on that? No, I tell you
1: what, you know, the part, uh, collecting the information was fun. You know, going to these meetings, it was always interesting, uh, and getting to know the players. At that time, I was like 12, 13 years older than most of the players, and uh, I, uh, so it was enjoyable, but, you know, suddenly the season ended, and I thought, oh, man, I got to write this now, (laughs) you know, the fun part's over, and I had recorded everything on cassette tapes, uh, the meetings and stuff like that, and written some stuff, but I, it took me a month, literally, of going through all those cassette tapes and transcribing the important information from that, and I worked every single day. Uh, I kept my apartment in Lafayette through July, and I worked every single day writing after after I transcribed everything, I had to write it. And I, I'm a night person by nature, So I wound up on a schedule where I would start writing late afternoon, early evening, and stay up until about 5 in the morning. Then I'd sleep until about, you know, noon or 1. Then I'd get up and do things for a couple hours, and then I'd go back to work. There were a lot of nights where, a lot of mornings, where uh, the morning paper would come. I'd read it and then go to bed. You know, I was on that kind of a schedule. So it was a huge amount of work. It had to be done But, you know, there's a deadline for it. The the publisher, which was in Chicago, obviously wanted that book out by October of the next fall. And uh, they had to have it done by, you know, July, sometime in July. At least that's what they told me. Knowing what I know now, they probably could have waited. But it was a grind. And that book, to me, kind of read like a, a first draft because, you know, I didn't really have time to go back over it. But it worked out well, you know. I mean, I, I feel good about it. Uh, there were things that could be better, but I think it gave a lot of insight into a college basketball season more from the perspective of the players, whereas a season on the brink was about the coach primarily. I got into the players and their background and their stories, and uh, so it was a huge amount of work. And I remember, you know, this may sound weird, but when I first got a copy of the book, sometime in September, you know, the publisher sent me a box of ten. And uh, when I got it, you would think I'd just be thrilled to death. I just kind of (laughs) opened it, and uh, uh, I was just tired. I was just kind of tired of it. And somebody had told me that would be the case. Some guy I knew in Michigan had written a book. And I said, like, man, it must be a thrill when you first get your hands on a copy. He says, you know what? I was so tired of it by then that I just, you know, didn't want to even look at it for a while. And it reminded me of a story I had read about somebody who climbed Mount Everest. And he said, when you get to the top, it's so grueling to get up there. You just want to get back down. You don't stand up there forever and look around. You know, you just want to get back down. You're just tired of it. And that's kind of how it was writing that book that by the time I was done with it, I was exhausted and tired of it. And it took a while to really appreciate you know, the experience and the effort and everything else. And certainly now I'm really glad that I did it.
0: And, and that brings me to my next question is like, did you get toward the end of it or when you got you like, Hell, I'm not doing this again?
1: <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, once uh, you know, the exhaustion wore off and you start to get, you know, you start to do book signings and you get some notoriety for doing it, you start to get a check, you know, from the publisher, you know, you then I wanted to do another one. And that's really when the idea began of, well, I want to do a book on, on the ABA Pacers. And my original idea, and so we're talking 1989, 1990, um, I started researching, started talking to ex-Pacers and researching, and then I got to think thinking, you know, there were teams before the Pacers. You know, I should do a book that traces the history of pro basketball from the very beginnings in the 1930s up through the ABA Pacers. That was kind of my original idea. But then I collected so much information, I realized that would be like a thousand page book. That's kind of ridiculous. So, um, and then, you know, I wound up covering the Pacers for the star uh, in 1996, uh, six, and there's no time to write a book you know I in the early 90s I mean I got kind of fed up with my experience in Fort Wayne and and quit there and was freelancing then I worked for a book publisher because I wanted to learn the inside of that business did that for a couple of years then I got lucky and caught on with the news like in 1993 um, so I'm during this time I'm talking to ex-pacers and then I'm talking to guys who played for the Katskis in the early 30s and the Olympians those guys as well I'm just gathering and gathering information but when I wind up covering the Pacers, that's like a year-round job, and I didn't have time to write a book. And uh, I tried to continue gathering over those years, but you know, it really wasn't until around 2009, 10 that I went back <laughs> to uh, turn the, all that information into a book. And I realized I got to narrow my focus here and just write about the very beginnings of the Pacers, and hope to get to the rest later on.
0: And how enjoyable was that uh, uh, with the Pacers?
1: Oh, it was, the research was fun. That's always, to me, the fun part. You know, meeting people, talking to people, gathering information, even, I love it. Uh, Written in 1967 about the Pacers, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I never get tired of that. Uh, or going back to the 1930s and reading the newspaper articles about the Kowskis, that kind of thing. So that part was uh, enjoyable, and certainly getting to know various people was fun and getting to know their stories. Um, I got a big break uh, when I found Chuck DeVoe, who was one of the founders of the Pacers, and he had kept the personal files of his brother John, uh, who was like the second team president of the Pacers, which had minutes from meetings and just a lot of information in there that nobody was ever aware of before. And that really gave me a lot of insight to it. So, the gathering of information, I think most journalists would tell you, part, the most interesting part—you know, sitting down and writing all that—you know, that's when it becomes work.
0: And how easy was it uh, for your interviews and stuff like that, and talking with former Pacers and and stuff like that from the past? Were, was it were the ones that you were chatting with? Were they open to that? Were they, did they want to chat with you about that? Was it was that? Yeah, difficult? they did.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, they they do because you know they're long retired and kind of out of the spotlight, and I think they like you know having somebody ask about their careers and you know getting some notoriety, you know. And there weren't that many unpleasant topics to discuss, so really everybody was cooperative, including you know people like Mike Storn, the first GM, and uh, some of the original owners. I just wish I had. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people, or at least a handful of people, I would have loved to have talked to who are no longer with us. I wish I had gotten with them back in the '90s or whatever. Like Joe Bannon, the original team president, of the banker up in Lafayette. He died, I think, in 2006, something like that. I think. Man, I wish I could have talked to him. But um, but everybody that I did talk with was really. Cooperative. Certainly nobody refused an interview, that kind of thing. And it's really, it's not just one interview. You know, you're going back to people five, six times uh, to really uh, get everything. You can't just call someone up that you've never met before and tell them you're doing a book and have them open up to you completely. So a guy like Steve Chubin, who I kind of devoted a chapter to in my book, who isn't a prominent player but certainly had an interesting story of his experience With the Pacers, uh, you know, I talked to him at least half a dozen times on the phone, uh, getting to know him, and, you you know, you learn a little bit more each time, or, you know, Jimmy Rail getting his, I talked to him several times over the years, beginning in the early 90s, and, you know, I still talk to him today, even though his health isn't that good, and his memory, his memory isn't good for what happened last week, but it's still good for what happened a long time ago, Um, so yeah, yeah, and I did talk to some people in the early 90s who have passed and turned out to be great that I had that information still guys like Larry Staverman, the first Pacer coach I talked with him when he was living up in Cleveland and Bobby Joe Edmonds died just a couple of years after I talked to him in the early nineties, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, it reminds me that you got to get the information from from people when you can, because, you know, there's no guarantee. they will be here tomorrow to talk to, but, uh, yes, everybody was really, Cooperative, cooperative, and I think most people are flattered. You know that somebody happens to care about you know their playing careers.
0: And were there some players and some uh, uh, people in the main office and stuff like that who who contacted you before you could contact them?
1: Um, nobody I could think of with the Pacers. There was a guy who played for the Olympians and the Olympians for people who don't know played here from like basically from 1950 to 53 and were taken to town by storm for a while before a scandal blew it up. But there was a guy on that from that group, Bill Tosheff. Bill Tosheff who played at IU from the region area, really good football, basketball and baseball player pitched for the Indianapolis Indians one summer. Um, he he called me out of the blue one day and said, I heard you're doing this, you really need to talk to me, you know, this kind of thing, and he was helpful, he was definitely helpful so uh, I can't think of any of the people from the Pacer days who contacted me Um, I certainly had, when I was doing my one-on-one Radio show, you know, my hour long conversation with sports figures. I had people contact me wanting to be guests on that show you
0: know?
1: um and some of them I actually did do shows with some of them frankly were not worthy of doing a show with. They weren't there, maybe a good high school player or something, but nothing more so um for as far as the book, not too many people reached out to me, but uh they certainly were accessible you know, for me to reach out to them.
0: You know, the book's called Reborn, The Pacers, and the Return of Pro Basketball to Indianapolis. Did you have a different approach to writing this book than you did with the one with Gene Cady? Well, it was
1: different in that I wasn't as stressed by a deadline. You know, I spent, you know, again, I began researching it in the early 90s, and I had to put it down at times, but I was able to gradually gather information. And uh, I did have a self-imposed deadline because I wanted it out, by last October, October of 2017, because that was the Pacers, you know, 50th anniversary. They their first game was in uh, October of 1967. So I wanted to book out 50 years later, and uh, but I, you know, I'm the publisher of that book. I wanted to have control of the final product, and so I, you know, by wanting to book out at that time, that meant I had to have it done by a certain time, so the printer would have it in time, you know, to be done with it. And have it in stores by October, so um I did have a certain rush to it, but not nearly as frantic as passion play in nineteen eighty eight and that and that helped and i it's a um it's a broader topic i mean passion play was about one college basketball season this is about you know some back history of pro basketball and how the franchise came together and then the first two seasons when the groundwork was laid for their future championships so a much broader spectrum to cover with this particular book uh, but that to me kind of made it more interesting and it also you know it enabled me uh, to not have to be quite as rushed in getting it done
0: did you find that with a lot of your interviews, uh, be it be it for your books or be it for your uh, uh, your program, uh, that a lot of these people were, were kind of hesitant at first, but then you get, get, couldn't get them to shut up? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can't remember anybody <laughs> being
1: too hesitant. Uh, well, you know, I tell you what, uh, I, I want to do a follow-up book on the Patriot championship season, and I've done a lot of that research already, and I did call Donnie Freeman, who was a starting guard, on the '73 championship team, and then the following year as well. And we talked, and he said, "Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you." You know, we kind of set up a time, and then I've never been able to get a hold of him since. You know, he doesn't return calls, and uh, you know, so I guess there's hesitation there. I did meet him. In fact, I sat next to him at this at the ABA's uh, reunion banquet last spring that they had. And so now that we've met, I think he's going to be more accessible to talk to me. Be it more willing to talk to me um but yeah i um, I can't remember anybody who has really standoffish as far as this book project, um not off the top of my head, but certainly once you get somebody going on the telephone or in person, you know they love reliving those days particularly if they were pleasant for him, and, and again playing for the Pacers or playing playing pro basketball doesn't wind up being a pleasant experience for everybody In fact that you know it ends badly for most people you get cut you get traded uh, you feel like you got a raw deal at some point uh, it's rare uh, to have the career go like it did for Reggie Miller where you're right off into the sunset with a Bentley and the standing ovation you know most guys get kicked out the door and are pretty bitter about it at the time so uh, but as years go by they tend to remember the positive things more than the negative things and they are
0: happy to talk about it Mark where can people who are listening to the show where can they get the book Uh, Passion Play was out of print for a little bit is it back in print uh, it's not, but you know
1: what? If you contact me, if you go to my website, there's a, a way to reach me, uh, email address. And I have like 50 copies left. You know, I, a couple years after it came out, the publisher in Chicago called me and said, hey, it's time to clear these out of our warehouse. Uh, we'll sell them to you. So I bought them at a cheap price and <laughs> have have some left. So, I, you know, it still sells, actually. You know, I did a book signing in Lafayette last december and we sold not only reborn we sold i only only at that time only had half a dozen passion plays that i could get my hands on they sold out quickly so you know if you're a purdue fan or just a college basketball fan i think it's still an interesting book uh just to see what goes on inside a college basketball season and uh so the, both of the books, you could get uh, from me directly, uh, and I'll be happy to sign it and send it out through my website at markmontes.com. but you can get Reborn, uh, I think, at any bookstore in the state of Indiana, and if you're outside Indiana, you can get it on amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com uh, and uh, be sent out to you that way, so Reborn certainly is uh, an easy book to get your hands on.
0: Tell me a little bit about your interest in baseball.
1: Well, uh, only as a spectator have a uh, kind of routine interest in baseball, but I am working on a book right now with Max Shoemaker, who was the longtime uh, general manager of the Indianapolis Indians. Uh, Max is 86 years old. Uh, he began working for the Indians in 1957 and retired really just a few years ago when he had a stroke. But he's in decent health now, and his memory is sharp, and I was brought in to get with him to put a book together on his memories with the Indians. You know, triple A baseball produces a lot of stories. There's always a lot of drama behind the scenes. Uh, there's a lot of things that happened with the Indians that if they had happened on the major league level would be, you know, big stories for people in Indianapolis, uh, things that were... As dramatic as a lot of the things that have happened with the Pacers over the years, um, but they just weren't as well known because it was Triple A baseball and not Major League baseball. So I'm working on a book with Max uh, that should be out in the spring. Uh, kind of his uh, memories of being in charge and working for the Indianapolis Indians and a lot of the personalities that uh, passed through there. Uh, and I think it's going to be good. You know, I think uh, there's a lot of good stories in there.
0: You know, uh, from 1974 to about 1988, my grandfather took me to 25 games per year. And man yeah. alive, there's that's some. that. I mean, I just it's probably just because of my own personal perspective, but you know, uh, seeing Clint Hurdle almost get into a fist fight with somebody who was talking about his wife from Champ Summers, <laughs> uh, Arturo DeFrades, uh, Rudy Mioli, you know, just that. that I I, that, I really look forward to that. That'll be a fun read.
1: Well, you must have seen uh, Billy Moore's game-winning hit that brought the championship, right? In the in was '86. Yes. Yeah, I mean that's you know if that moment happens, uh, I mean that's you know a game seven game-winning hit you know in the bottom of the ninth type of situation, and uh, and you know I've talked with Razor Shines you know about that Razor Shines was at bat, looking forward to having the chance for a game-winning hit. He was intentionally walked. And when they threw the first ball and w- when it became apparent that they were going to walk him, he slammed his bat down on the home plate and broke it. because <laughs> He was mad that he wasn't <laughs> going to have a chance to get the game-winning hit. <laughs> so he gets walked to load the bases and Billy Morrison gets the game-winning hit. and You know, stuff like that is just classic. And you could imagine, you know, the, all the things that went on behind the scenes uh, for a AAA baseball team. And Indians, as you know, a lot of great, Players passed through Indianapolis. George Foster, a lot of guys who went to Cincinnati. Uh, Roger Maris played for the Indians one year. Uh, this is before Max's time. But uh, and then guys came in as opposing players: Denny McLain and Mark Fidridge. Uh, pitched against the Indians, <laughs> that kind of thing. So there's, uh, you know, a lot of great personalities and a lot of great stories, too.
0: Yeah, and one of the best stories I have is looking out my window on 56th Street and seeing Razor Shines put uh, oil into the uh, <laughs> into our house. <laughs> put oil into your your house? Yes, yeah, he worked for... Uh, oh, he go ahead. Okay, I'm going to say he worked for who? I think he worked for Amoco Oil or Standard Oil, and he would—he uh, uh, was doing something with our house with it, dropping something off, and I was like, man, that's razor-shines, man. <laughs> well, you know, they, those guys need off-season jobs. They don't make that much money. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah
1: and that was a big reason for his popularity and that he stayed in Indianapolis in the off season for most of his time with the Indians and he lives in Austin Texas now i had never met him but i've talked with him on the phone in fact he's providing the afterward to the book richard luger is doing the forward but razor shines is doing the afterward and a great guy and he had a lot of great he was a great clutch hitter and a great personality, as you know. Uh, He was as popular to Indians fans as Reggie Miller was to Pacer fans. So uh, I really enjoyed talking with him, and he was a big admirer of Max Shoemaker, and uh, he's certainly in the book a lot.
0: Yeah, there's nothing there was nothing like going to an Indianapolis Indians game. I mean you can go we went down to Cincinnati and watched the Reds play in Riverfront, but I'm telling you there's something different about Triple A AAA team where people are trying to make the big leagues rather than you've already made it to the to the show, you know?
1: Yeah, there's less ego, obviously, in Triple A baseball guys are either on their way up or they are trying to get back up you know they've been humbled at the major league level and they're trying to get back up like Denny McLean was or like Mark Fidrich was and sometimes they do maybe they're they're rehabbing an injury or something like that so it's a different atmosphere the games are not that expensive Uh, they do a lot of crazy things uh, in minor league baseball for promotions you know we write about that you know they used to have you know a, a car giveaway night Uh, in the early 90s where, you know, you'd have a chance to win a car, a used car, uh, like a $3,000 car. Um, You know, uh, just a lot of of crazy type promotional things, some of them that work and some of them that don't. And uh, so it's just, it's human. You know, there's a lot of human stories in minor league baseball that you don't see at the major league level.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. My grandfather always told me, uh, when the San Diego chickens come to town, we ain't going because it's too crazy. <laughs>
1: oh, that would sell out all the time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes, the chicken, Ted Giannullis was the uh, the San Diego chicken, then he became the famous chicken. And uh, Max actually says that uh, everybody, the, all the owners, the general managers loved having the chicken come in but they didn't particularly care for Ted so (laughs) not an easy guy to work with but he would bring in fans and he made you know a lot of money for the minor league teams so uh you know yeah guys like him or there's a guy named Max Patkin back in the 60s who was kind of a clown as well preceded the chicken uh you know who Max had kind of mixed feelings about but uh yeah just uh this insanity a lot of times in these minor league games uh, that you could things you could not get away with today, certainly
0: Mark, what do you I do mean, imagine ma-
1: having a as was say imagine having a chicken coach first base
0: yeah no, no <laughs> kidding <laughs> that's what that's what was going on
1: <laughs>
0: uh what do you do with the pacers now mark
1: well i write I'm basically a freelance writer, and i write for their website, you know, go to the home games and practice the And, uh, you know, do basically feature stories or, you know, stories from the games for their website. Uh, And it's been okay because I was brought in with the agreement that I could be objective and that, uh, you know, I'm not a shill for the Pacers. I get accused of it sometimes, but I'm not. I don't write anything I don't believe. Um, uh, I'll admit there have been a couple times I wrote a story that they didn't post <laughs> uh, when things weren't going too well but it's, everything I write that goes up you know is uh, is accurate and uh, it's not you know garnished to try to make it more positive than it really is uh, fortunately the Pacers have always had a good front office and they try to do the right things and there's not much reason to be ripping on people so uh, uh, it's, uh, it's been a, it keeps me active. You know, I got so frustrated with my job at the Indianapolis Star that I just left in 2008, gave two weeks notice and left and went back to freelancing. And this keeps me uh, at the games. You know, I have a credential. I can go to practicing games and stay involved and you know, still kind of stay in the network, so to speak. So it's been a good experience for me and it's only a part-time thing. I'm basically an hourly employee, so I have the time to work on other projects like a book. So it's worked out pretty well.
0: And and how hard is that for a writer? I know this is a question late in the interview, but how hard is it to kind of weigh the options of of your angle on the story, is it do you, uh, do you want to tell the truth and get the backlash or do you uh, how hard is for that not to sweeten it a little bit so that your stuff gets red? Does that make sense? Yeah, well,
1: yeah, I, I think one thing that's changed, I think back when I began, there was an underlying pressure from readers uh, to be positive about the team you cover. I think now it's kind of flipped. I think <laughs> there's kind of an underlying pressure to be negative about the team you cover. You know, if people get mad at the team if they're not winning a lot and uh, if you're not ripping them the way they are they think you're a show for the team but a lot of times there's a very legitimate reason why a team might be struggling and it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody in the front office doesn't have a clue of what they're doing or that the players aren't trying or whatever you know it's difficult to put together a successful team of any kind at any level so um you know now i don't think there's much pressure from people to be positive about the team it might go the other way uh but I think in the long run, you know, just telling people what's going on and asking the right questions is all you can do. I don't write that many opinions. I rarely all out praise somebody for being great. I just kind of – I still consider myself a reporter first and foremost. I will occasionally write something that is done just to give credit to somebody. Like when George Hill left the Pacers, I thought he had kind of gotten – a raw deal from the fan base and was underappreciated and I wrote something kind of pointing out what he had done and you know gave statistics to back it up that kind of thing and uh, I'll do that occasionally but usually mostly it's just kind of being a reporter and uh, and telling people what's happening and uh, one of the frustrating things for me is I'm a again I'm a part-timer there basically and uh, I'm asking the questions that television and other reporters use for their Articles and they're they're full timers, you know, and it's like I'm almost like I'm contributing to them uh, for uh, for no compensation, but that's just the way it goes, and uh, that's part of it. But it's um, it's still been it's good overall, you know. It's uh, the, they've been good. The Pacers have been good. Not that I'm ripping anybody. I'm never going to say so and so should be traded or so and so should be fired. Obviously, they're not going to post stories like that. But everything that I do that goes up there is, you know, going to be accurate, and uh, if there is opinion in it, it's going to be justified.
0: Well, I'm a broad ripple rocket, so anything you said about George Hill, you could have said negative things about George Hill, and I still would have been happy about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, George,
1: George, you know, people got, you know, I'm not saying he was an all-star point guard, but he was really good, and he was an important part of those teams that went to the conference finals. And he was an underrated defender. You know, I still recall the series with Toronto when the Pacers lost in seven games and George held Kyle Lowry eight points below his season scoring average and didn't get much credit for that kind of thing because people were more more focused on offense. But I just thought he, I didn't, never said he was great, but I thought he was very good. I thought he was a good point guard for that particular team and uh, I thought he sh- he actually showed more leadership than what he wanted people to see. He was kind of weird that way. Some guys put on a big front of looking like uh, a leader or uh, having a great attitude, and George was kind of a little bit surly on the surface, uh, but actually had a very professional attitude beneath that. And uh, so I just tried to make people aware of what he was really like, and uh, give credit where credit was due. And uh, somebody must have agreed because he got a $20 million-a-year contract <laughs> <laughs> later on, you know. So, uh, so I wasn't the only guy who thought he was a good player.
0: You know, six degrees of separation, his mother was in my U.S. history class <laughs> when I was at Broadway. Oh, no, <laughs> 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 um Mark, 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 your website is subscription-based. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's a lifetime for one fee. Can you tell us a little bit yes. about what people could get uh, and what uh, is included on your website?
1: Yeah, it's just one payment of 1995. It's not an annual payment. I want to keep it simple. I'm just trying to get the money back that it cost me to put up the website. I spent an entire summer putting it together and I had to spend obviously quite a bit of money to somebody to get it all together for me and uh, still have to make payments, you know, to keep the thing up and running. So it's one-time payment of 1995. Uh, You can go to MarkMonteith.com. It's M-O-N-T-I-E-T-H is the name. And, you know, you could make a payment there, and then you're good forever. And it's got all of my one-on-one radio interviews with a lot of uh, great Indiana sports figures, uh, you know, lengthy conversations about their stories, a lot of the different articles I've written over the years, uh, and various other odds and ends that I've come across. Uh, over the years, I even put up a shooting video of me in the basement over at Emis Communications one day uh, shooting around <laughs> just uh, just for the heck of it. So um, I think if you're a fan of Indiana sports, not just basketball but other sports as well, uh, I think there's a lot there to like. You know, for 20 bucks, it's you know it would take you years to get through it all. So I don't think it's an unfair price, and uh, I think uh, there's a lot there people would enjoy seeing.
0: And I've seen that video of you shooting and uh, I think you, I think you were lying about your uh basketball prowess.
1: <laughs> well, I can shoot. There's no doubt about that. That's <laughs> the one thing I can do is, is shoot a basketball. My my high school career did not turn out as hope by any means because I just had I don't know if you want to hear this or not, I just had probably the strangest career anybody in Indiana high school basketball has had. You can edit this out if you think it's boring, but uh, the first, you know, I didn't really get to play varsity basketball until my senior year because we had so many upperclassmen when I was a junior. There was no playing time for me. All those guys, you know, went on to play either football or basketball in small colleges. And um, so then I'm a senior. Suddenly I get my opportunity to play. Uh, There's only one other senior on the team. The first game of the season was against Ben Davis. I had 20 points, eight rebounds, and five assists. Everything's looking good. On the day of the second game, we played speedway, and I, I guess I was throwing up and everything. And I played a little bit that night. I think I had four points, that kind of thing. And it took me, really, it seemed like a couple weeks before I felt right again, You know, before I, before I felt healthy. And by then, the coach uh, had chalked it up to a rebuilding season. You know, we had a good underclass group, and it was obvious that particular team wasn't going to you know be another sectional champion or whatever and uh i lost my starting spot you know and it just did not turn out well for me so it was a huge disappointment for me um, and that's life you know i i didn't uh, all i wanted was a good high school basketball career and i had basically a one game career uh <laughs> that season opener and it was downhill the rest of the way so that was unfortunate
0: but those things happen but see, that sounds fantastic. My one year in organized basketball, I scored two points at Tabernacle, right off of 34th Street. <laughs> we lost 20-2, yeah. t- to two, and I said, told my dad I was so excited about scoring those two points, he said, but you lost 20-2, to two, and then I never played organized basketball ever since.
1: So did you play, was that Bob Bernath who was kind of running that Tabernacle program? Probably. Do you know Bob Bernath?
0: Yes, yes, I've heard that name, yes.
1: Yeah, he's the guy who's always been involved in that tabernacle. I know he officiates games and he helps organize it. He has been – uh he's still with the Pacer Stat Crew, and he's been a member of the Stat Crew going back to their second year of existence. And actually the first year of their existence, while he wasn't an official member of the Stat Crew, he was going to the games. He would do the public address announcing for the preliminary games they used to have out there all the time. So, yeah, Bob Bernath, I know he was a big tabernacle guy. So yeah. he's uh He's the longest running uh, pacer employee out there now.
0: Yeah, I also um, uh, Elliot Siegel was my baseball coach in high school. So uh, okay, and he's been he's been with the Pacers for quite a long time too.
1: Absolutely, he goes back almost to the very beginning. And yeah, yeah he, Elliot's a great guy. And that that stat crew has some guys who have just been there for a long time. There's been very little turnover, and it's you know it's part of the. Um, atmosphere out there to see those same people year after year it's been great
0: well, the book is called Reborn, The Pacers and the Return of Pro Basketball to Indianapolis by author Mark Monteith. Uh, you can go to markmonteith.com. Uh, you'll get all this information here on the uh, uh, outset of the program, on my little uh, summary of the program when we post it. Uh, go there if you want some uh, some great reading material, uh, uh, outstanding book, uh, outstanding website. So, Mark, thank you. Uh, we ran a little bit long. I but uh, Just like I told you, sometimes when we get these people, I don't know what I'm going to talk about for an hour. I can't get myself to shut up and, uh, most most of the time, but uh, we went a little bit long. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, and I'm I'm pretty sure everyone's going to enjoy this.
1: All right. Thanks, Billy. I appreciate it. It's been a good, it's been a fun conversation.